Jake Sandos, Mike Gallagher. It is bye week. So what are we going to cover? Well, we're going to cover a lot of things. Southern Conference football, Southern Conference basketball, Buck basketball, Buccaneer, Bash, Boo, Berry, Binocular. I don't know. What's that thing called? Binoculars? I don't know. Buck basketball, Boo, Bash, Binocular, Bonanza. Let's go with that. Okay. Blue Nanza. Blue Nanza. Yeah, we, I think we left that in the past. No, okay. All right, we've left that. Well, okay. I know you want to hang on to it. It was your creation. I know. Blue I know. Nanza, yeah. I know. It's, the, it's dead and gone. I'm sorry. It is, yeah. It's, it, and it should be if you've watched some of those in the past. That being said, uh, bold predictions, right? Yeah. Did I cover it all? Did we get? Did I forget a segment? I mean, I think you might have. I four downs. Actually listen. Yes, four downs. The return of four. Not, not fail downs. Now, I know that people probably are more in love with fail downs. At least we are. Well, that's true. We, no we do like to entertain that. ourselves. But the Southern Conference has a lot of questions to answer, so we definitely have to get into some four-down Southern Conference edition. But I'm guessing people were saying, uh, you know, what are, what are they going to cover? You know, no ETSU football this week. How about five segments? I think this is the first five-segment show in Santos and the Sidekick history. You're staring at me. You just want me to get on with it. Okay, let's do that. Southern Conference football preview. I mean, obviously the Bucks aren't playing, but the Southern Conference will go on. Are you going to play the breakdown? Oh, I think I might have to. Oh, that's right. That's weird because I, I know because we yeah we started the show so well. I just want to hear. Sandos and the sidekick. We have a Now I'm ready. Now I'm ready. My See, I, I wasn't mentally ready. Now I'm ready. My head actually hurts a little bit after that. Uh, all right, last week there were five teams that entered the weekend with one league loss. This week there are four. One is off, that being ETSU. The other three have a chance to emerge from the weekend with just the one loss because they all play teams in the SoCon with more than one loss. The question is, will they, or is there some pandemonium and chaos about to swirl around ETSU's bye week, which would be great from a blue and gold perspective because they could just sit back and watch it all go down. Let's start with what I have believed to be the league favorite since I filled out the preseason poll. Chattanooga, they're hosting Furman probably the game of the weekend. Would you agree? Yes, it's by far the game of the weekend. There are intriguing things about the others, I think, but this is, uh, I think, will mark Furman's official exit from the Southern Conference title picture. Uh, apologies to Sokon John and Brad Stone. And I'm excited to see in a must-win situation for the Paladins what kind of fight they put up against the Mox. Chap puts up 55 points last week, tied for the third most in league play in the last 17 years for them. Gave up just 13. Sanford's fewest scored in league play since they lost 20-13 to to Chattanooga nearly a decade ago, all the way back in 2012. They could not look better coming into this game. Cole Copeland averaged 19 yards per attempt. Now, I know you're a pretty statistically savvy guy. You know that a usual yards per attempt that's good is like eight or eight and a half. In college, maybe a little bit higher, nine, nine and a half. But he basically doubled that number, averaging 19 yards per attempt last game, uh, 11 to 14, 261, and two scores. 
10 players caught a pass of the 14 completions the team had while Alim Ford bulldozed his way to 139 yards on the ground. The defense had a pick six. It's all smiles for the Mocs, who are the nation's leaders in interceptions with 13 and top three in turnovers gained and turnover margin. Jay Person is the national leader in fumble recoveries. Brandon Dowdell, national leader in interceptions. Devon Maxwell, third in the nation in sacks. And as a team, they've lost just one fumble the whole year and allowed just six sacks, eighth fewest in the country. That is quite the resume. Then there's Furman. They're even better at keeping the quarterback clean. They've allowed just five sacks all year. They're also second in the nation in fewest penalties, so they're not going to hand you the game in those ways. But they've found ways elsewhere to assist opponents, and this week it feels like a mismatch. The Mocs want to run it. Furman's 65th in the country in run defense. Now, they did play the Citadel and Wofford already, so that number's a bit inflated. Maybe, but ETSU could really get whatever they wanted on the ground last week, too. So, to me, that is where this is a bit of a mismatch. And it's for Chattanooga against many teams, but specifically Furman coming off uh, a game in which they had trouble stopping. Yes, a very solid ETSU run game. And I think you and me have said that we both view ETSU and Chattanooga's runs game, run games as relatively similar in terms of talent. That I do. I think the one difference in the matchup is where ETSU – Sanford give up big plays. Uh, Furman hasn't given up massive plays. They've given up a few here and there, but they've not given up big plays. They sort of kind of keep everything in front, kind of play base. So I don't know that Chattanooga is going to have the home run, but I do think Chattanooga has a shot of having six, seven yards per carry, which is what ETSU had. Um, and I think it was even close to that even with the sacks but if you take the sacks out it was you know closer seven eight yards so I think that's the big thing for me is Chattanooga is going to be able to get yards on the ground will they be able to bust big plays because I think Chattanooga has relied on the big play a lot this year kind of those quick hitters those long touchdowns um, to go Furman plays a some zone, they will man up a little bit, but they play zone. There, there's some things where they'll have guys in position where ETSU, Sanford, some others that want to play man. They want to, you know, do some coverage type things. I, I think Chattanooga is not going to have as many points as probably people think in this one, and I think it's because they're going to be able to keep things going. I think this is actually a game between whose play action works the best, and I think if. Furman goes back, and I have no idea why George Quarles and Furman did not go back to a lot of the play-action game after that drive in the third quarter. It was once or twice. But to me, I would have just ran, you know, every other first-down play would have been, or, or second-down play would have been a play-action to roll Jace Wilson out. He looked good on the rollout. Uh, I think he will have a more pressure because – Chattanooga's front three clearly gets to the quarterback better than ETSU's front three does. So I think the rollout game is important. The play action game is important. If they can get him out of the pocket and let him, you know, kind of roll and throw, he looked pretty good doing that. I think Ron Miller doesn't drop a pass this game. So if he has an opportunity to score, I would agree. I think they're going to have an opportunity. So I, I think this game will be tight. Um, I think just the way Furman kind of keeps everything in front of him. I think Wilson got a little better. I think Furman will have trouble to score, and I think this it might be a 21-14, 21-13, you know, which I guess is a it, – it would be a one-score game, but it would be more of a touchdown score game to me than a, than a 2017 game. But I think this would be low scoring. I think it will be tough for Chattanooga to put big plays on the board, put a lot of points on the board, 
because I think Furman's defense does a nice job of, of kind of in their base, sticking to what they do and keeping plays in front of them. And if Copeland gets a little loose with the football, certainly Blackshear and some other folks have the capability of, of creating a takeaway. But I think, you know, Chattanooga's run game is going to be better than Furman's run game. And I don't think Wynn was healthy last week. I mean, just watching him, and I don't know, you know, I, I, Robert used the term pitch count. I don't know if they just wanted to ease him back in, use him more, um, you know, sort of in ease him in with, with injury to use him as a decoy maybe is a better word sometimes. But I think if Furman can get a little success on the ground and get that play-action game going, I think they got a shot to get some plays down the field. And uh, I, I think that's where Furman has a shot. So if Furman's play-action game is there, I think it's there. If Furman can hold Chattanooga to not a couple of home runs that they've been able to hit last few weeks, then I think they've got a shot. If they can get to the quarterback, which has been a tough task to do against Cole Copeland, he has a propensity to turn the ball over. So – that's how Furman gets in there. For Chat, I, I think it's a similar – it's a blueprint ETSU had mid-third quarter on. I think they'll look at that and go, man, ETSU, you know, because they want to run – where I think Chattanooga's unapologetic about being a 70, 75% run. As they should be. And I think Randy Sanders has said, you know, he likes a 55 or 60-40 run pass. So Coach Sanders wants to throw the ball more and has admitted he was a little bit stubborn and wanting to throw the ball more. But I think Chattanooga will stick to the run. I think they'll be able to get some chunk plays. I think this will be low scoring. I think Chattanooga will not have a long touchdown in this game. I think they'll have long touchdown drives, but I don't think they'll have a 50-60 yard home run ball in this one. I think that's the reason that it stays close. And if Chattanooga is going to be unapologetic about running the football, as we imagine that they will be, as they absolutely should be since – their run game is so much stronger than their passing game, at least for the majority of the season. Now, again, Cole Copeland looked just fine last week, but I think it's going to be in the ballpark of 14 to 17. I don't think it's going to be as close as you think it's going to be, but I do agree with you know pretty low scoring, 27-10, 28-14, somewhere around there. Um, I mean, a tough back-to-back for Furman, right? UTSU and then Chat. You know, I think 14 to 17 in favor of the mocks. Um, I do think that if Jace Wilson makes some throws and they can keep him standing, then there's the possibility. And like you said, I mean, there's no way Ryan Miller's going to drop passes, especially touchdown passes, big passes in back-to-back weeks. They've got some weapons. We didn't see Ryan DeLuca, it seemed like, a lot last week um, involved in the pass game for Furman, but obviously he's there too. Um, I, the funnest matchup for me is that fearsome pass rush that leads the league in sacks versus Furman's offensive line that is rarely beaten in pass protection. I mean, that's fire versus fire, and you could see an indication of which way the game is going to go pretty early on by who's dominating that line of scrimmage, as you did in the ETSU and uh, Chattanooga game. Games 1A and 1B for me. Uh, if you want, you got nothing, something else? Well, I, I was just going to say, I, I thought they played in the spring. I had to go look it up because I wasn't 100% confident, but they played a 20-18 to 18 game in the spring. And so I sort of feel like that's – and I, granted, things have changed. Different people, just different quarterback altogether for Furman, so – I kind of feel like that is sort of how the game is going to play out. Um, a, a 2017, 20. I, I just want to say that I thought they played in the spring, but when I was talking earlier, I, I didn't want to commit to that, so I had a chance to look it up. But that, that's more of the game I think we'll see. They played traditionally, unless unless Furman 
has blown them out. Traditionally, if Chattanooga wins, it's fairly close type game. So just going off tradition, I still think it'll be close. I think it'll be low scoring. I think Chattanooga at home will win the football game because I think they'll be able to do a better job of keeping Copeland upright and letting him make throws. Games 1A and 1B for me involving the other two one-loss teams in the league. Let's start with VMI and Mercer. VMI and Mercer are the two teams. VMI is playing Sanford, right? I, I, was, I, I was confused for a second. I, did, I, flashbacks. Did, I didn't know if you were flashing back to something to get to yeah, a point, right. so I didn't interrupt you. But no, I, was, I, was, I was, okay. I saw a 45 for VMI, and I was picturing, oh, you know, 55-45 game. You know, I don't know, some kind of connection there. Uh, you envisioned that VMI and Sanford could break triple digits at one point to throw heavy offenses but Sanford coming off a day in which they put up just 13 against Chad and VMI that's showing an ability to run the ball with maybe the best back in a one back system in the league you wonder what this one may hold the Kedats have won four of their last five coming off a bye week and give credit to their defense it's one that I really wondered about they're ninth in the nation in pass yards allowed per game so far much like Furman in terms of rushing per game allowed in that statistical category, probably a bit skewed because they have played Wofford and the Citadel, right, and they're just not going to throw as much. So maybe those numbers are a little bit lower than they eventually will be, but uh, still very impressive to this point in the season. Didn't allow Chattanooga or Mercer to get over 200 yards either in the past game, and that's a Mercer team coming off a 357-yard performance from Fred Payton. Now, of course, they're going to be tested way more this week with the Bulldogs, and Liam Welch has just been an interception machine. 12 thrown this year. This will be start number 18. I want to go back to, just for a second, what we were talking about on Monday's show with not a lot of experienced quarterbacks. Even Liam Welch, preseason offensive player of the year, went back, looked 18. So you were, I think, right on in terms of saying there's no one with more than 20 starts at quarterback in the league Um at any point in their career. His first five years, because keep in mind, he got to Stanford in 2016, he had just 12 interceptions. But this is the first year as the unquestioned, undisputed starter, and he's just not been good enough for a team that relies on him so, so much, probably unfairly so, so, so much as they do. What do you think the odds are, I know this is going to be way out of left field, that this breaks out into a battle of running backs? Brady versus Stanton. I feel like your answer is somewhere between slim and Never in a million years. <laughs> yes, I agree. No, no, I don't think either team would let it happen. Uh, it's almost like um, if somebody gets to 100 yards in the first half, they'd be like, all right, guys, he's got his. It's, it's, uh, let's figure out how to throw it around the rest of the way. I feel like both coaches are sort of pot committed to the system. I will say the, the one thing is that one of those two could determine the game. But I don't think it'll it'll break out into a running back war, but it wouldn't shock me if one back had 100 yards and that was the winning team because they were able to sort of mix, mix things up a little bit. So that wouldn't shock me if one did, but it would. I'd be more shocking if you looked at me and said, are you going to see two 100-yard backs in this game? And then uh, it would sh- – Again, both guys have had a 100-yard game. So but you're probably thinking happen. like somebody's going to bust a 60- or 70-yarder based off somebody establishing the pass. Yeah, yes. I, I, I don't think it's because he's got uh, 22 carries, <laughs> 25 carries, and, and 100 yards. So, And the one thing that these two teams usually guarantee you is a spectacular football game. Their last two games have gone to overtime. Um, generally speaking, they are high scoring. Last year's game in the spring, if you remember, Udinsky actually tore his ACL. This is a game I, uh, I went back and had to watch because I was confused on somebody came in, Udinsky got back in the game, which was Seth Morgan at the time, and Udinsky would throw the ball, and to, to throw it, he would have to fall forward and land on his stomach 
to get the ump out on the ball to get them down the field to tie the game. Then they eventually, what a uh, <laughs> you know, wow. And then won in overtime. It was like 38-37, went for two and got it or whatever. Or Sanford went for two, didn't get it. I don't remember which one. But somebody went for two and ended up being 38-37, VMI with the win. But watching, you know, Udinsky just, I mean, if you didn't love that guy's effort to try to will his team in, the year before that was an overtime game. I mean, they just seem to be a tit for tat, I think. This, I mean, and I'll get to in bold predictions, but this this game is, I think, going to be off the charts as far as points scored and back and forth because I don't think VMI is really built defensively to handle all that Sanford does. In the same token, Sanford hasn't stopped me or you offensively all year, so that's not a, that's not a good thing. So, I, I mean, I think there's pretty much every intramural team on Sanford's campus could score 30. So VMI is going to score – 40. They're only 10 points better than an intramural team? Well, eventually you've run out of possessions. <laughs> okay. So they score. Uh, intramural well, teams score on. not bold. I hope you know. If that was your bold prediction. No, 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 okay, no, 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 no. The, the other team's going to have a lot of points, too. Oh, okay. All right. I may even throw a third overtime in there. Who knows? My, uh, my 1B, I actually think there's a compelling case here in the Mercer Citadel game for a bounce back. The Bulldogs, to me, have not given up on the season. Now, please feel free to disagree, but let me lay out my case first. You know there's different levels of bad, right? You've been around sports long enough to – bad is not just bad. There's different levels uh, ranging and different reasoning for the different levels. So, man, they're right there, but they just can't find a way to win. Bad, right? And that's, to me, the best level of bad. Then there's the, wow, they're bad, but at least they're still in some games bad. You know, you go down a little bit of a level there. Like, it's not they find ways to lose, but it's like uh, – they're still in some games. They're still probably losing by 10 or 14 points. And then there's, wow, they've clearly given up. And that's the worst <laughs> kind of bad. Right. I personally think that, especially after the bad start last week against Western and getting it back within a score, I don't think that the Citadel has gotten to the worst side of that spectrum, the wow, they've clearly given up bad. So I think this week they're facing a team in Mercer that showed a lot in the passing game last week, decimated Wofford. Obviously, that's a team that I believe is approaching the wild. They've clearly given up level of bad. The Bears, I'm still not totally convinced, are the offense that can pile up the points week in and week out. I do think that they can run the ball effectively every week. I do think they will win this game. But I also think it will be by 10 or less. Mercer still hasn't played Chattanooga or ETSU. They lost by 38 to VMI. And those are the three best teams in the league. You agree? VMI, yes. ETSU, and yes. Chattanooga. So I guess I'm also not sure if Mercer is truly up to the level of those three. Is Mercer the most susceptible one-loss team to you now that Furman has fallen from the ranks of the one-league lost teams? They have to be, don't they? I would say yes. That Yes, I still had them outside my top three. They were in that other three. I still think they're in the other three category for me. I think – the smoke and mirrors, if that is contained, they have nothing else to fall back on. And, yes, I know you've already said it, that they were able to chunk the ball all over the field last week against a team that doesn't want to be there anymore. But I just feel like the smoke and mirrors is going to catch up to them at some point. The question for me is not really which Mercer team you get, it's which Citadel team. Do you get the Citadel team that had you know, beat VMI, Competed in a you know the Furman game was right there had some th- you know turnovers not converting fourth downs 
you know, I think if Citadel can limit some possessions and keep the ball on the ground, does Drew Chronic and crew panic a little bit? Do they fall in love with throwing the football? I, I'm, I'm curious to see, you know, was that uh, more trying to prove Fred Payton can do it or more just Wofford sold out and said, by gosh, beat me over the top. I honestly had no interest in watching that game, so that's one of the few Southern Conference games this year I've not seen one second of. I'm, I probably will when it gets to Mercer Week just to see, but that's – I think there's only two games I've not really watched this year, and that's that's one of them so far. So I'm kind of curious to see what exactly Citadel is because, to me, this game is more about Citadel. Are they going to be able to come at Mercer like a wild banshee or spider monkey and jump on the back and just you know not go away? Or is it starting to waver a little bit? And with the loss of Western Carolina, the, the demoralizing defeat, is there now generally academy guys aren't like that so i expect a little bit of fight and if they can ball control and jalen adams can get out there and then get a turnover to i think citadel has more than a puncher's chance in this i think for mercer i'm kind of curious to see what are they going to be in this game are they going to run the football are they going to try to prove that they can throw it i felt like they wanted to set the tone by throwing the football in the first play of the game against vmi and that went awry and maybe that was just a lightning in a bottle, you know, first quarter for them that went really bad. And they were down 14 nothing, and actually got back into it. Uh, well, no, they never got back into it. They were 14 nothing after the first quarter. Really, not, I think nobody scored in the second. And then in the third, VMI just wore them out. So, kind of curious. I think this is about Citadel. I would be shocked if the Citadel does not bounce back in this and at least give them a little bit of a fight. And so I think it, Mercer will squeak it out, but I think it will be a, another heartbreaking defeat for Brent Thompson. And I think it will be a survive and advance for Drew Chronic's team. Final one, and I know everyone doesn't care about this game, right? I know I do. people from north to south, east to west, across southern conference country. Cole does. Totally checked out, except for Cole, obviously. Cole, um, I think even the southern conference the other day said, all right, Cole. We'd know your opinion. And in this case, we would know your opinion on this game. I think Western Carolina is going to win. Very invested in the contest. Well, I'm actually not as down on it. I'm with Cole. I'm not as down on it uh, as others may be. It doesn't have the league title implications. Maybe a race to the bottom of the standings when things are all said and done. But Western Carolina at Wofford, super intriguing from the perspective of how do the Catamounts respond to a little bit of prosperity for the first time under Kerwin Bell. Can they build on what they did at the Citadel last week with the big performances from Carlos Davis and T.J. Jones? And on the other side, Wofford obviously has a long losing streak in league play. They're still missing a number of key pieces defensively. And maybe it's not fair for me to say they've reached the wow, they've clearly given up level of bad because of those injuries being a significant reason for their struggles in both the spring and here in the fall. But it just seems like the team has been drifting aimlessly for quite some time now, and I know that you agree with that. Bryce Coriston was bad in his starting debut for the Terriers last week. Now I'll say this. That Mercer defense, much better than the Western Carolina one he will face this week if he is the guy, which I think would be smart to try to get him on track if you believe that he does have a bright future with your team. Porous, catamount defense. And also, if you're Wofford, I, I know I say it week in and week out, but you're probably tired of hearing it. Irvin Mulligan, give the man more carries. Just 11 touches in either aspect of the offense last week. Call me crazy. I think this is going to be a shootout. And I think that favors Western. But I think the... 104th-ranked defense in the country in Wofford and the 118th-ranked defense in the nation in Western, even with Wofford's offensive woes, this one's headed for the 30s. 
Would that be a bold prediction? May I have a fourth? I think that might be bold. I think there will be points scored. I, I like the take. Um, you know, Western obviously has not been very successful against Wofford. I think uh, they've dropped 19 of the last 23. Um, I think they've won one of the last 11 in Spartanburg, and I think that was 97. So do you have something, right? 97, ETSU, Furman last time. Is this the 97 uh, round two where Western Carolina goes to Spartanburg and picks up a win? I was on the Western train of I thought they would give teams fits, and I thought they would pick off a team. Now that they picked one off kind of (laughs) early, you know, and playing with confidence, and Carlos Davis has clearly stepped in for Rogan Wells, and because he has more eligibility, I know Wells runs the ball much better, but I'll be curious to see if Kerwin Bell just, even if Rogan Wells gets healthy, maybe just doesn't look to the future and say, hey, I gotta, I'm got i rolling with this kid next year. So he threw for 400 yards, um, and generally it's tough to throw 400 yards against Citadel, now, usually just because of possessions and – Heck, they've got two or three defensive backs playing in the NFL right now. I mean, generally it's tough to throw against the Citadel. And he threw for 402 yards. I think both defenses are going to give up a lot in, in this contest. I guess because Western has trouble still stopping the run, and I'm going to say it this way because if Wofford was still running the traditional flex bone type stuff, three backs, then I think Western coming off that win in the Citadel – would be more apt to have a great game defensively. But I think because Wofford does whatever it is Wofford does, that I think Wofford's going to be able to score. And I think if it is a shootout, I 100% agree Western Carolina has more weapons to score than what we saw at Wofford. That being said, I think Sanford only had 27-24. Wofford has played better at home minus the Furman game. They, but they gave up 45 there, but they, you know, they, well, they lost Kansas State. Maybe they've been terrible at home. I don't know. I have to go back and think, think about that. You tried to give them credit. I was. You were trying. It's not. I, I, so deep in here. I, the, the one thing that I'm kind of pulling for would be if you're a Buck fan, I think you would want Wofford to win this. And the only reason is I don't know that you want in the perfect trap game coming up in your schedule to play VMI at home, Western on the road, Mercer at home, and everybody, you can't tell me, is looking at the two home games more than the road game. And if Western is able to rattle off two, three wins in a row. They've got Furman at home next week. Which and, and West Carolina this year, if you do look at their scores at home, they have been better at home. And I know they got the road win. But it's going to be a close game. I don't know if Western will win, but it will be a close game. And if let's you know, let's just say Western got on a roll, and I'm not predicting Western to win both these games right this second. But if they got on a roll, and then you're looking at three three in a row, and they got nothing to lose, right? Not going to playoffs, not doing anything. All they want to do is just pick off another team and get going. So as a Buck fan, I will say I will be pulling for my guy Conklin. You know, he's my guy, <laughs> and. I would like Conklin to not have his overall record drop to 19-19 in four seasons by picking up this win. That being said, I think this is a true test for Wofford and what they're made of. I think Western is going to come in there off a win, playing really well. They're going to want to throw the football, move it around, take big shots down the field. I think if 
Wofford can do what they did to Sanford, kind of slow some things down in the pass game and be able to hit some runs because I think everybody can get yards on what – I think the defense is behind the offense at Western, and I think that's – anybody can just look at scores. You don't, even have to, you don't even have to look at stats. If you just look at scores, I think you would see that. I mean, the only defense that's given up more is Sanford. So I, I think Wofford has to win this game if they're going to salvage anything. And for Western, I mean, this is going to tell us more about Wofford than Western. Western's going to be scrappy. I said that from the beginning of the year. I still believe it. They're going to give, give teams fits. Just like the previous game isn't about Mercer, the one-loss team, it's about the Citadel. This one is 100% about Wofford and can Coach Conklin get those guys. And if you're Wofford and you were maybe a little down on yourself, you have to look at this one and go, hey, realistically speaking with the rest of our schedule, this, this may be our best shot here at home pick up a W. I think you look at the Sanford game, you brought it up, if you're Wofford and you just design everything you did off that, you had nearly 600 yards in total offense, 336 I think on the ground, it resembled a lot more of a downhill bruising, find different ways to move it in the run game and just beat up the opposing defense. Now you lost, 27-24. I I think this is going to be a game much like that, add 10 points to both sides. 37-34 37-34 one way or another. I don't know who's going to win. I think I favor slightly Western Carolina, very slightly. Uh, but I could see 37-34 Wofford as well. But just look at the Sanford game and look at the opponent, right? Team not with a good defense. Team that loves to throw the ball. Carlos Davis is going to be able to throw it at different points throughout the game because Wofford's defense is just not what it's been. 4-0-1 last week, Southern Conference Player of the Week, probably just loaded with confidence. I'm guessing Western Carolina is, too. Like, you can't tell me that they came into the season thinking, all right, first-year head coach, we haven't been good in so many years, but we're making a run at the Southern Conference. They didn't have expectations. So they win one, go on the road and get one at a proud military school that loves their football program. And you can't tell me coming into Wofford they're not flying high and looking at the chance that they have, say they win four of their last five, say they get on, you know, three in a row, let's – of course, they, they lose TTSU because, obviously. And then they uh, win at VMI. At VMI, yes, which makes lots of sense. Um, four of their last five. What did Mercer do last year? Four of yep. their last five. So, I mean, there's a chance there, and I think they have to keep that in mind. And, and to do so in the last half of the schedule where they're going to run a little bit of the gauntlet, Furman, ETSU, VMI. Now, two of those games are at home, but you look at – read those three teams, right? Those are three of the four, five top top no upper doubt. half of the league, no right? Doubt, yeah. So, you're going to be able to prove yourself there. If they can get another win here, I think it, it's it's trouble for the rest of the league for Furman, ETSU, and VMI because now you're getting a team that's got nothing to lose, it's got a lot of confidence, which is what I think Mercer kind of got last year. Spring season, you know, some teams want to play, some teams didn't. Who's really in it? Who yeah. wants to do it? They're winning. They're dancing on the sideline. They're producing eight-minute videos, epics every game, and just, you know, fired up the crowd and, and getting the fan base to show out 8,000 for the ETSU game, 9,000, whatever it was, 9,000. They had 10,000 in the game this year too. So I think they Western has a shot yeah. to do that. Mm-hmm. And in Cullowee, as much as nobody shows up for any basketball game, no. football 330, when they 2017 when they pummeled ETSU there and thought they were going to get an at-large and honestly got kind of hosed because – I think their name's Western Carolina. I think if you put their resume with a different name in a Southern Conference on there, they would have gotten the playoffs. That was when they set Donovan Spencer because, hey, we're going to be in playoffs. We need them fresh. They ended up losing that last game to Mercer. I think, obviously, if they won that, I think they were in 100%. But even with the loss, they thought they were in. They didn't get in. And my argument would be 
your West Carolina. Similar to ETSU baseball back in, I think it was 2010 in the Atlantic Sun, and three teams in the A-Sun were going to get in, and it was going to be the third team was going to be Jacksonville ETSU, and they played in the first round of the tournament, and Jacksonville won a 2-1 game, heck of a baseball game, and ETSU was 35th RPI. They are still the highest-rated RPI team to never get an at-large bid, but we kind of knew going into it they weren't going to put four ASUN teams in. And you kind of knew and, – and Jacksonville wasn't that far behind. I think they were 43-44 on the RPI. So it wasn't that far behind, but still it was one of those situations. And I think West Carolina was in that bubble 2017, and they want to – so my point being is that the fan base will be there because they were there in 2017. They will show up if they win in football. If they win this game at Wofford – it's going to make the next couple games against Furman ETSU a little tougher than what it would have been if they lose this game tomorrow. No doubt about that. I do think the one difference between Mercer and Western Carolina is you think it through much easier to bring momentum from mid-April to early August, you know, three and a half months. You're talking full seasons. Now, for those guys, right, it doesn't really matter, I'm sure, the proximity of schedule to schedule. Last time we played, we won four of the last five, or even if it's three of their last five, whatever it may be. Uh, if they can build that momentum, I do think it will carry over. Maybe not in the way that it did for Mercer. I don't think that Western Carolina is going to contend for a Southern Conference title next year. Now, I don't really think Mercer is going to contend for one this year, but they're off to such a hot start where it's easy to look and say now. Um, but, yes, regardless of where the schedule is, I do think that is possible because these are the same guys that are going to be taking the field or a vast majority. Um, and I think that they're – bought in to an extent in Western Carolina with Kerwin, Kerwin Bell. I, I don't think that anything he's saying is falling on deaf ears. I think they're competitive. I think they're getting better. And again, it is it is a lot like the Drew Crowdick situation in Mercer. Now, will it have the same effects in year two? Um, again, I think there's some questions there. But uh, it would be a big, big plus for them. And we'll touch on this a little bit in four downs uh, to be able to make that future look a little bit brighter with a couple of wins down there. Yeah, I think, uh, again, for Josh Conklin, it's a must win. No doubt. He's got to win one. better because I just enjoy the misery of things. You do. You bask in the I do. darkness and destruction of everything, don't you? I just wanted to hear both bumpers, honestly. I don't know if people have ever listened to those back-to-back, but and maybe there was a hunch here from some listeners, but that is the exact same bumper. It's just downs instead of fail. Love it. Both much more popular than four quarters. First down. This is an all-Southern Conference edition. Okay. I'll start with the easy one for you, and then we'll work our way up to fourth down. Obviously, Yep. First down. Harder to convert. To I get it. Yep. Operate sure. on fourth. More difficult. A lot of place. Chattanooga and ETSU are the clear-cut best teams in the Southern Conference. Clear-cut at this point. Oh, it's going to make people mad and homer, but I'm going to say yes. 
You want a long answer or short answer? Short answer oh, is yes. Only four downs. This is going to be about a two and a half minute segment. If you just okay, yes. all right. I, well, I think if you, I, we're taking away VMI. If you didn't listen to segment one, we included VMI in top three. So now I'm we, asking we, you to eliminate one. Yeah, and VMI has more holes. If we're going with VMI as three, which me and you both agree on, I think VMI has more holes than ETSU and Chet. I think Furman. If they were to go and win at Chet, could change the narrative in a quick week. Now, me and you both think it's going to be a tough game and a loss for Furman and knocks them out of contention for the championship. Mercer's the wild card because they don't play Chattanooga and ETSU till the end, last two weeks. So they'll know a lot about sort of them. They you know, obviously got spanked by VMI, which we think is the third team, which would make me put them fourth on the list for obvious reasons and in Furman five of a ranking. But right this second – um, I think if you look at all the statistical things, you look at wins and losses, you look at the game against one another, then I think those two teams, and I know VMI is probably doing jumping jack saying, that, well, we beat Chattanooga, right? And, and I get that. And um, you did, and it was an overtime game, and it was great. And it was actually a fun, fun, fun game to watch, and you've done something against Chattanooga that a lot of people haven't been able to do, which was really push the ball down the field and throw it. And, again, I don't know that the gap between ETSU and Chattanooga is vast. If you're just saying which two teams are above, then I'm going to go those two because VMI has more holes to fill, I think, defensively uh, than the other two teams. And I think, again, defense wins championships. Second down. The Southern Conference Player of the Year on the offensive side of the ball will be Quay Halls. Yeah, I don't – who would – I'm Ford. Yeah, yeah. I get. I, I, I don't. Yeah. I'm not uh, for VMI. I guess you'd have to throw in Corey Bray because Seth Morgan has not been out there the entire season. The stats are not of a VMI esque passing performance over a season. And those are the top three. If you believe the top three, and you want to say, okay, it's the best player on the best team. Now, if it's not the best player on the best team, I would throw in Montreal Washington from Sanford. Now he's the most dynamic bar none because they get him out in space whether it's throwing the ball it's handing the ball off it's you know what whatever it is leads the league in scoring receiving yards per game and all-purpose yards per game yeah that and and that's not a bad pick because you're talking about he's averaging almost 180 yards a game and all-purpose um, yards, yes. the next 40 for quay the next two and three is quay and sailors yeah. and so maybe you washington beats him out for the simple reason that holmes and sailors are splitting similar to why i think ford Ford and Holmes, the only reason I think they have a little bit of trouble is because they do split time with other quality backs. Um, and if somebody's got a hot hand, then they will go with the hot hand, um, Chattanooga and ETSU. It has been lately dominated by quarterbacks. I mean, even if you go with now, you know, Wofford Joe Newman was a running quarterback, but it was still a quarterback, right? So, and Bobby Rainey, who was it? Bobby Rainey, uh, Liam Welch, Devlin Hodges. I'm trying to think all the other ones. So they were, you know, quarterbacks, quarterbacks, quarterbacks. So I would love to see somebody other than a quarterback get it. Um, certainly I think Quay Holmes, if you had to pick a top three, I would almost go it's Holmes, Ford, and Washington. And the only reason I would put Washington third, not because he's not dynamic enough for his team, but his team kind of spits out offense. But it's what they do, but they don't win. And I'm a big – I'm not a – it has to be on the winning team, but I think you have to be a winning team 
for you to get that award. And so I think Holmes can edge out Ford at this point. I don't think there's a quarterback deserving of one, right? Not even in the consideration. I think the only receiver or multi-guys Washington, other than that, I think it is a running back heavy Holmes Ford deal. He, I mean, and, and if Fred Davis could get more carries, maybe he could get in the mix. But really, he splits carries too. I mean, there's really it's the old days of featured backs really aren't a thing. A lot of people, you know, two-headed monster. Brady's the closest thing, but even he missed a game due to injury, and his backup had a hundred-yard day. So I, I don't know. I'm gonna go. I'm gonna answer all that to say I'm gonna go yes. If there was a vote right now, I think Quay Holmes is the player of the year. There's one quarterback averaging over 300 yards per game for the year. That's not too strange, right? I don't think you're going to find a lot of 300-yard quarterbacks in normal systems. Now, this quarterback isn't in a normal system either. Sanford, Liam Welch, 316 yards per game. But there's very few that are going to throw it at the level of Sanford around the country, right? So I'm just comparing the Southern Conference to the rest of FCS and comparing Sanford to the rest of FCS and what they do. I think it's pretty normal to have one quarterback in a league have more than 300 yards per game. It is not normal to have... Only two quarterbacks with over 200 yards per game. That was. I'm glad you brought that it up. Is not. I was going to bring that up. Tyler Idell, 208 yards per game. And now give him credit because coming into this year, his high in a single game was 207. So he's averaging more this year through the year than he ever had in a single game collegiately prior to this. But then you drop off to Cole Copeland, who you and me have been at times critical of. I've called for a... Clearly, still injured. You're Robert calling Riddle. for a guy who hasn't played in two years. Two years. To, to, to it is now take over, over two years to come in and play for him, and he has been a lot better recently. But after those two, and Tyler, I think at times has to take some criticism too. We don't do it here because we're an ETSU show. But if we were not biased, then we probably would find a few more things to poke holes in. But just two averaging over 200 yards per game, just two averaging over 175 yards per game. Then fourth is Fred Payton. Basically, all of his came last week, 357 in the one game, just 157 on the year. And then Seth Morgan at 139.2, which is extremely shocking to me. Um, that is alarming to me. We knew it was running back heavy, but you look at the pass stats, and it is brutal. And I, and and Seth, you know, played in a couple of games. So some of that where. He, you know, he only played two series, and the Cornell got knocked out, and I think he was like one of four passing. So that you add that into your game average, that brings you down. And then he came in in relief of another one. So I don't know that it's 100% fair for Seth Morgan, but that being said. That's Kick what, out those two, it would still only be 208 per game, which is still very low for me for that. Yes, yes. I, I think that is – and the, the – SoCon's been run heavy, but for other reasons because of three backs and some other things. But now it's becoming run heavy because teams are able to just road grade. I mean, and you, you look at no the other options. <laughs> there's, there's only really three. T- and with VMI adding the run, in which they've not really been doing, because it was basically right. You just had a couple pure passers. In, in, in the way that Kerwin Bell wants to play, you're talking about pretty much a pure passer in Western Sanford and in VMI. But with... VMI getting the run game going and Western getting more success on the ground. You're really only stuck with Sanford is the only we're going to drop back and throw it, you know, 40, 50, 70 times, whatever it is for them. Everyone else is going to either be balanced or run more than they pass. But it is unique to see just two people averaging over 200 yards, which, again, I goes 
back to my youth and starting and people figuring it out. And, you know, Jace Wilson and uh, and there's only been a few – I'm trying to think there's only been – is there four quarterbacks have thrown over 300 yards? Cause you're four talking, quarters. Right. I think there's only four quarterbacks that have had games over 300 yards, two of them being at Western. Yeah, and I was just about to say, we do have to give a little bit of an asterisk because Carlos Neither Davis one of them have enough starts yes. to, to, to get in there, but uh, but Davis and Wells have each thrown over three. I mean, I think Wells threw for 500 that one game, and then you're talking about a 400-yard game. So, you know, there could be – let's say let's just say three. Let's say you combine those per quarterback. There's still three quarterbacks out of nine teams that have thrown for over 200 yards. But then the only other quarterbacks, I think, that right, Liam Welch, and then was it Peyton last week threw for 300? Can you think, of another, can you think of another quarterback threw for 300? That's all I got. Off the top of my head, I didn't read. Oh, oh, uh, uh, oh, yeah, Furman, uh, he threw for 300. The, Hep the A&T, Hep Sisson threw for 300 go. against that. Yeah. It seems like a distant yeah. glimpse. So five, there's career. been five, out of all the games played, that still seems laughable. There's only been five quarterbacks that have played. Rogan Wells and Carlos Davis are averaging – almost exactly 222 yards apiece. So, honorable mention to Western Carolina as a unit, and I think that they would over a season average, you know, 225, 230, something in that area, if not more. So, there is the third, but again, hadn't played enough. If you honorable mention that, even if you combine Wofford's combined stats, it would oh, still no. be 100 and 113. <laughs> okay. All right. All right, here we go. Down. <laughs> uh, the Southern Conference, slowly dwindling away. Jay Sandoz, since getting four teams into the FCS postseason in 2016. It was three in 2017, two in 2018, two in 2019, just one in the spring. That was just the second time since 2003 the league has there, gotten There should be an asterisk there, though. Uh, sure. Could, well, there, was, I mean, there was 16 instead of 24. And it was just strange. It was. And, 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 and ETSU was technically the last team out. So if it was tw- if it would have been since they expanded to 24 in 2014 or whatever that was, there would have been, but yes, to your point, I like where your head's going. Look at the record book, Jay Sandoz. Uh, the SoCon will reverse its fortunes, and we'll get more than one team into the FCS playoffs. Yes, I think that. What if I changed it to two teams? Because I was on the border of really pushing you on two and giving you a softball with one. Will they get more than two? That, no, that's a better question, because I think they'll get two. I think if the season ended today, the ever-popular season ended today, I think... VMI, Chattanooga, and ETSU could conceivably get in. And it probably depends on how they finish. If VMI, they've already beaten Chat. if they were to win out and just lose to ETSU at ETSU, ETSU were to win out, and let's say, and this will not be good news for ETSU fans, but Chattanooga won out, you're talking about three teams and one loss, and they all beat each other, right? Basically, so then the tiebreaker would go to some other weird formula. Maybe ETSU would win that tiebreaker. I've not done that research. But there would be three teams with one loss, top of the league. I think you could get three in. I think Power 5 wins should be tiebreaker. I think it would be awesome if that was a tiebreaker. I would assume it would go to the next one in the standings, which um, – I mean, that's not nearly as fun. I mean, we want budgets. Well, they can't go to any other team to break the tiebreaker in the league. They may have to go to non-conference strength schedule or something. You're right. They could do that. So the triple champ. So, yes, that that would be a good scenario for the league to get three in. Fourth down. We foreshadowed it a bit in segment one. 
talked about Mercer and the bright future that they built in the spring 2021 season by winning four of their last five. Western Carolina and perhaps what they could do this year if they're able to build some momentum. The Southern Conference team with the brightest future is Mercer or Western Carolina or other. Is Bryce's future open to interpretation or do you have a definition? You interpret things whatever way you like. I know you're going to anyway, so go ahead. Okay. I, well, I think because Western had zero momentum coming in and with Carlos Davis, I think if Rogan, I said this a lot on the podcast, if Rogan Wells was still the quarterback all year, Next year, Western would take a step back in whatever they did this year because you would have to figure out that, and they would slowly build back up. But if Carlos Davis can continue to be the quarterback and will be the quarterback next year, I think Western Carolina has some upside. You say that because Rogan Wells is a grad student, so this is presumably his one year. Right, unless, I mean, unless. Presumably. You know, I mean, we've seen Jared Folks with eight, so it's not 100% Wells. But. He was pretty much brought in to be a one-year, let's let's get things going, we'll get everybody else up to speed, we'll get new people. When you hire somebody that late, it's just difficult to get things going. Kerwin Bell has won everywhere he's been. I think Western would have the brightest upside because they have the most to climb out of. I think Mercer has a lot of things going for it, um, just with Drew Chronic. And we'll see how the next couple of years with his recruiting goes. But Mercer has not been a team that's been battling for a, a, a you know, last spring they were. And, again, if we just put a – I'm not jumping an asterisk by anything because people played games, and Mercer certainly beat ETSU last year and ruined the chance for the Bucks thought they had Terrible at a game. conference uh, championship. But that being said, you know, VMI has a championship ring. ETSU's had one lately. Chattanooga's certainly had one. You know, Wofford's had one recently. Furman's had one recently. Citadel's had one recently. So, for championship pedigree, I think Mercer probably has a lot of upswing in where they were a couple years ago with Bobby Lamb. As they continue to go, I would just argue if you're going with the biggest jump and moving, it would be Western, but it's only because they were the furthest down. But I would go the biggest mover and shaker is Western, the brightest star to jump up and be a not normal name to win a championship would be Mercer. That is. Now we're going to talk uh, football to basketball, right? Southern Conference Media Days. With our dramatic beat. Spoiler alert, you already know who's been picked to wear. Oh, you went with the intro portion of the song. You added the front part, I see. It's my favorite part of it. Okay. Because then it hits harder. Whoa. It's my favorite part. I, uh... Coming in hot, baby. If you're listening in your car down the road, jack it up. Southern Conference Media Day, and neither of us were there yesterday. Two days ago, whenever it was. That's probably why, because we didn't know exactly when it was. No, we definitely knew when it was. Definitely didn't show up. 
but it's set up. It. Why would we big time an event like that? Well, Why? it's set up differently now. They didn't have the, you know, one cut the round table and go get all your interviews and all that. It was, you know, still COVID related. They did the Pete Yannity segment. The coaches did their deal, and then you could do some one offs. But it was everybody kind of gaggled together. And normally, I like when. It's a situation where you can go to the coach's table and then you can spend four or five minutes getting sound bites from the coach with just you asking the questions and getting all that. So, that being said, there are no players. So, there were limits in space. But, yes, we did big league everybody. Preseason, all Southern Conference teams. Let's start with the men and we'll go over the teams and the poll. Uh, let's go with the poll first. Chattanooga wins in both. Media and coaches. Chat, seven first place votes in the coaches' poll, 18. Of the 27 in the media, second Furman in both polls. Uh, ETSU third in the coaches poll. In the media poll, it was Wofford. Mercer fourth in both. So you just swap Wofford and ETSU in the media and coaches poll. In the media, ETSU fifth. Wofford third in the coaches. ETSU third. Wofford fifth. UNCG sixth in both. VMI seventh in both. Then Sanford, Citadel, Western Carolina in the coaches. Citadel, Sanford, Western Carolina in the media. I think the media really shortchanged ETSU. I had the exact same poll, except ETSU was two, and Furman, Wofford, and Mercer all just slid down a spot. I also had Sanford last because, you know, buckyball. And so in that media poll, they went Chattanooga, Furman, Wofford, Mercer, ETSU. I went Chattanooga, ETSU, Furman, Wofford, Mercer. And again, the bottom spot doesn't really matter. Uh, Five teams got first place votes. How UNCG? Got three. Yeah, Wofford was all over that. There were several Wofford folks, uh, Jim Noble to play with play. I was like, can we out the media guys that just blindly pick UNCG three? That was. Which we'll talk about one on the women's side, too. But, uh, pick them one. Three people picked them one. Yeah. And, that's... And, and I realize a lot of people were like, oh, UNCG won last year, so we'll blindly oh. do that. But, I mean, they literally have brand-new staff and a almost a brand-new team. Yeah, let's go over it for a second. They lost, obviously, Isaiah and Wesley, the Millers. We know that. But they also lost Hayden Koval, who yeah. was probably the best shot blocker in the country last year. Statistically, he was right up there. Over 300 career blocks. He's like second all-time yeah. or something. Uh, or second among active players. Yeah, it, was, something. it was something ridiculous. Angelo Allegri, gone. Now, they do have a couple of nice transfers coming in. And I like Mike Jones. But with all the moving pieces, I certainly think that it's going to be a year or two. Uh, to say they're going to win. I mean, it's just lazy to pick them. Uh, you can't just look at last year's standings and vote based on those. And I know that's what a lot of people do. But that's why these polls are a joke. I mean, ETSU fifth. And we're just to be clear, we're not going to go over our entire Southern Conference preview here. If you've listened to the show before, every year we dive about 45 minutes, maybe an hour deep into everything ETSU, everything Southern Conference on the men's and women's basketball sides. Those will be huge, giant, ridiculous shows. That's not what we're doing here. We're just giving you a quick overview. My quick overview is I hate media members that just look at the standings and regurgitate them into a preseason poll. Absolutely lazy, and quite honestly, in the markets that the Southern Conference is in, I'm not surprised the media is lazy because we've seen it year in, year out. I, I really am conf- The three is what it is. If there's a single outlier, you're like, okay, fine. Two, eh, three? I, I don't get um, – I, I just don't get that at all. No, nobody, coaches or other media. So they were, I just want to know where they would have finished. If they would, well, I guess they had. They were 50, was that, 56 points ahead of VMI, so they probably still would have been above VMI in the total 
points, but still, I think that's very ridiculous. Out of all the things ridiculous, not where UNCG picked, I think they fell exactly where they should have been. Yeah, agreed. I had them six. I'm just shocked that they had three there. And I think, again, there's some unknown because you're talking about Chattanooga, I think. Chattanooga, Furman, and Wofford probably have the most known, known, and then Mercer maybe four, and ETSU a little unknown. A lot of returning players for ETSU, but a, yeah. but a new staff. I mean, so I think those were pretty simple. I think the most unknown was UNCG because they have a lot coming, you know, lost, not coming back and on every facet. Heck, they don't have an AD right now. Then um, they got our interim, our boy Kevin Boston, former ETSU employee. But then VMI lost a lot, you know, had some guys transfer, grad transfer, because, you know, they don't have grad school. Then the Citadel's hanging around there. Then Western had a bunch of turnover. And, of course, Sanford has whatever it is. So I think the top six were right. Um, you know, I think UNCG was six. You think the top bar- six is right, but you don't agree with the order. You don't agree with ETSU fail, do you? Well, it depends on well, what well, no I'm okay. No, not in the media. I'm okay with – Three. Yeah, I agree. I'm okay. I agree. I'm, I'm not going to fight over three. I think the curious part is Wofford because they return like ten guys, but they lose, you know, Storm Murphy and they lost somebody else. But uh, was it Lawson? No. Who's the shooter? No, who's the shooter? Um, Hoover. No, they, Hoover's been gone for two years. No, was Hoover gone for two yeah. years? No, oh, okay. Murphy yeah. and then, yeah, they lost. Well, that was Hollowell. They lost Murphy. Well, it was just those two. Okay. Yeah. Well, they had 13 scholarships, so I thought they lost one more because they had ten returning. I'm, not. I'm, I'm just saying of their major. But they got big, you know. They got B, they got they got BJ back, right? The big guy that killed ETSU down yes. there. Yeah, they got BJ back. Morgan Stafford's back. Max Klesman's back. Yeah. So uh, Ryan Lawson, my guy, Flopper McFlopperson, yes, Lawson's back. Yeah, uh, he, anybody gets near him, he flops immediately and flails and yells "Sweet Jesus" and tries to get a call. But I mean, they to me that's the one because they I think they took a hard hit with Murphy. I didn't know what to do with them. I think you lose. Cy Jones is back as well. We forgot. <laughs> and he only plays well against ETSU. That's incredible. Um, I think Furman hit maybe the next hardest because Clay Mounts goes, I guess, overseas. I don't think he transferred anywhere. And then, uh, and then of course, uh, Gurley went to Alabama, I want to say. We can talk through all this in a right, later segment. Right. We don't get into the nitty-gritty. But I, I do think that there's some oddities in that media Without a question. Uh, let's look at the Southern Conference teams, um, and we'll get to the women's later. Let's talk about the men's. David Jean Baptiste, Malachi Smith from Chattanooga, Hayden Brown, preseason Southern Conference Player of the Year, Ladarius Brewer, and David Sloan. Glad to see David Sloan after last year. I thought he was very borderline, right on the cusp of being Southern Conference All League. Didn't quite get there. Does get preseason All League. Mike Bothwell from Furman. Alex Hunter, I know you're happy. MVP. I know you're absolutely thrilled. <laughs> Neftali Alvarez, Felipe Hase, and Jake Stevens from VMI. Obviously, aside from being most happy about Alex Hunter, and I'm most happy for David Sloan, uh, looking at a couple of things, there's six teams representative of the ten. Western, Sanford, Wofford gets no one. UNCG gets no one. I agree with the entire team here. I think the next group, and you can throw in any names that you'd like as well, Max Klesman or B.J. Mack, we already mentioned from Wofford. Darius Banks from Chattanooga. Ty Brewer for the Bucks, Caleb Hunter from UNCG. Poor Camden Kerfman from VMI. He just never gets the love, but he's solid. Tyler Moff from the Citadel, he found some more eligibility somehow um, and stuck around after being a grad transfer from a non-D1. 
Um, I know we both like Tyler Harris and Travion McCray from Western. They're probably a level below what we're talking about, but those are the ones that stood out in my mind as maybe just a level below, but then I look at those names versus the names on here, and I think, okay, there's a pretty healthy gap between the All-League team and the ones that missed out. I, I think the top ten's probably spot on. I mean, you could deep dive and make maybe a slight argument here or there, but I, I think it's hard to argue with the ten that's on the list. Um, the only thing I would have changed is player of the year, and I like Hayden Brown. I don't like his short shorts, but I like Hayden Brown. I think, you know, what he adds to the game. But I would have voted Malachi, which we don't vote on that. That's a coach's thing. I would have voted Malachi Smith. We love Malachi Smith. Yeah. I would have, you know, just a double-double machine, very efficient, does it all offense, defense. So I, I think um, as much as it pains me to admit a Chattanooga would be my preseason player of the year, I think that would have – and I'm not taking anything away from Hayden Brown. It's just, you know, they play that system. He's They're going to be – eighth to tenth in the standings. I mean, it's just, again, I don't think wins have to be end-all, be-all because he's putting up numbers against the league, right? So he's playing against pure competition. But I think that would be the only thing I would have switched was the player of the year. And then, of course, a lot of people have asked me, what, what would I do with DeSosa, the transfer from Kent? But I don't know. I mean, there have been transfer guys that have come in, but it wasn't like he was a world beater at Kansas. Now, he's stepping down. You know, obviously Big 12, the Southern Conference, I don't think anybody's comparing the two leagues. But slight step down, right? So will his numbers go up? But we haven't seen anything from him, and he's had troubles. Right. So I would not have put him. Would it shock me at the end of the year if you're like, hey, he's an all-conference first-team guy? No, would not. But I don't think he he came in with accolades enough to where you put him on the team. That well, would be the only – that's the guy I had the most questions about. He's the biggest name to transfer in. I wouldn't look past Quez Glover. That really made me scratch my head when he went to Sanford, but he is there from Florida, and I don't think you can totally – They got like a top 50 recruit or something because his uncle's on the staff, one of those deals. I also don't think you can totally overlook Avery Diggs. It goes to Chad. 6'11", 250, you know, and size in this league is always at a premium. So those are, I think, the big three transfers. I think DeSouza – Obviously, he's got talent. We know that. And he's been heralded to be an incredible basketball player and someone that can change the game at the highest level of collegiate basketball for years and years and years. We haven't seen it. We haven't seen it. He's a big name still because of all of the controversy that has swirled around him. As you said, put it perfectly, if he's first-team all-league end of the year, wouldn't be shocked. Not at all. Not a surprise. But to put him on that team when we haven't really seen anything outside of chairs and headlines for off-court stuff for the last three or four years to put him on a preseason all-league team when he hasn't played a game in the league and has just been anything but a basketball player since getting to college basketball I think would have been um, a bit getting ahead of yourself. Well, he's known for other stuff than basketball, right? That's your point? Yeah, okay. Uh, women's basketball poll, and there's the coach from the media, as on the men's side, Mercer, Sanford, those are the top two in both polls. Mercer first. I was a little surprised. Mercer takes the top spot. Sanford takes number two. Then Chattanooga's third in the media poll. Wofford's third in the coaches poll. Furman goes fourth in the coaches poll, while Furman's down in fifth in the media poll. Um, in the media poll, you have Wofford uh, fourth, so Top five in the media, Mercer, Sanford, Chattanooga, Wofford, Furman. In the coaches, Mercer, Sanford, Wofford, Furman. 
Chattanooga, and then bottom three, UNCG, ETSU, Western Carolina, standard across the board. There is one vote for the Southern Conference media poll that goes to ETSU for the top spot. And we may or may not know who cast that vote, but we will not reveal it on this show, uh, unfortunately. Um, I'm surprised at the top. I voted Sanford number one, and I did that because of the return of Shante Babbitt. I think UNCG is in for a big jump. They're getting Aja Boyd back and comboing her with Khalees Kane inside. I think it's going to be really, really difficult to have any success in the paint against UNCG. UNCG did not make a big jump in the polls. They finished in the bottom three last year. They finished sixth in the poll this year. I think maybe even more so than the men's side. This is one where media look at the standings and say, all right, well, I'm just going to vote the same thing again because I don't want to do any actual research. But I think the two things that were surprising to me, you've got a ton of talent at both Sanford and Mercer. It was close in both polls. Uh, Mercer beat Sanford by two points in the coaches' poll by eight points with more points available in the media poll, but eight points in the media poll. First place votes were, you know, off by two. Mercer eight and six, and then five and three in the coaches' poll. Um, and then UNCG finishing sixth. I, I really think that they're going to make some noise in the SoCon this year. And Shante Battle coming back for Sanford, I think, is going to be an X factor because otherwise, uh, Sanford and Mercer really have their top three back. Mercer loses Jada Lewis. And she was the X Factor last year for them that put them over the top. And Sanford gets a really good player in Shantae Battle back. So I guess my question is, I had Wofford down where other people didn't. Am I crazy? No. Now, I, I don't – I mean, you're obviously a little more tied into the women's top to bottom than I am, but I just felt like Wofford was third in the coaches' poll. That shocked me. Fourth in the media, I think I had them sixth. So I guess my first question to you, am I out of line by predicting them sixth? Here's what I'll say. The only thing that they lost, now it's a big loss. We recognize the name, Jamari McDavid. Not bad. They did not have the fall off last year in losing Deja Green, who went to Virginia Tech, and Chloe Wanick, who was their heart and soul for years and years and years, one of their top three scorers in program history. They didn't really have the drop off that many thought they would. In fact, they were right in the ballpark of the same conference record. That was surprising to me. Now, it's because they got Jackie Carmen back, right? Jackie Carmen missed so much time with that knee injury, and she was not efficient. In fact, it was honestly downright ugly sometimes to watch her offensively. But she is a dangerous scorer. She shot just 29% from the floor, shot just 23% from outside, and she was someone that was going to win the freshman of the year and maybe take the three-point title in her first year at Wofford. Her game has clearly changed in her time away and being off the court. But she is a scorer, and she will force the issue. She wants to get her points, and she'll do it by any means necessary. Having her back was huge. And Lily Hatton is the other reason. I mean, she was the Southern Conference freshman of the year. She's a big that can do everything, a real weapon for them. They lose just the one player. I was going to vote them lower. I ended up voting them, I think, fourth after having them sixth because I looked at it and said, if it's just Jamari McDavid, who is a really strong player, and of course always, as you said, um, with, uh, I can't remember who it was, Messiah Jones for Wofford, something about Wofford players, and just showing up against ETSU. Showing up against ETSU is what Jamari McDavid did. Big loss maybe in that matchup, but on the whole, she was probably the second, maybe third best player on that team, and if that's your only loss, I think that you do have a shot to be in that top. So I did what I always do. Before I fill out the women's um, top to bottom, I put Furman five. <laughs> yes. 
Sometimes I put them four, but I just randomly assign them four or five because I love you know I love Jackie, but they're that's always what they are. that's what they are. yes it's like the you know Tennessee Titans I put, I put them in the same spot every year I feel like they're the same every year, and then you know I had Mercer Sanford Chat one two three I was more aligned with the media, um, and then I had UNCG four Furman five Wofford six ETSU seven and Western eight so I don't feel like I was that. I, it was more in line with what I had, but that that's – I think Mercer, Sanford is the cream of the crop. Chat could make some noise, but I feel like it's a two-team race right now. That could change when they start playing basketball, but my short take is that it's Mercer and Sanford, and they'll yeah. determine the league champion. Absolutely. No okay. question about it. And we'll talk more about that uh, as we move forward. The women's basketball uh, preseason team, and by the way, to your point on Furman, they're like two or three years removed from going seven and seven four years in a row. So it, they have been a little bit better in terms of being above 500. I, I probably should have put them four then instead of five. That's what I should They've been a little bit better, but yeah, it was incredible to see how they found ways to finish 500 in the league year after year, regardless of who they had. Uh, the preseason also got a team on the women's side. Tierra Hodges, Jaron Doherty, Amir, Amori and Neil Tyser, uh, Shannon Titus. There's the three from Mercer, Doherty, Neil Tyser, and Titus. Aja Boyd. Makes that preseason all-league team after missing last year with um, a severe injury. She's back. And for UNCG, she's on the team. Natalie Armstrong, Andrea Cornoyer, and Annie Rammel. The three from Stanford. Again, talking about those top threes. And then Stanford maybe having the edge because of Shantae Battle coming back, being that fourth. As Mercer maybe had an edge last year because they had Jada Lewis as their fourth. Abby Cornelius for Chattanooga. And Lily Hatton, who we already discussed for Wofford. And these teams really are about those big three, Sanfords and Mercers. One thing with Mercer, as we mentioned, is Lewis gone, battle in. Cornelius over Ebony Williams for chat was interesting to me. Ebony Williams, another ETSU killer. Uh, Six of the eight teams represented. Only ones that weren't ETSU and Western, the bottom two in each poll. And kind of as you saw on the men's side, that's generally how it goes in these preseason polls. Yeah, I didn't have a – again, I thought – you know, could you put Ebony in and take somebody out? Probably, but I, there's nothing egregious there. The player of the year, I thought, was that's who was going to get it. I didn't think that was a, a, a big – preseason polls for all conference teams really don't – I know a lot of people get really fired up over it. Really don't. I mean, there's been a couple years where we've looked at something and go, man, that's egregious, somebody's left off. But for the men and women, at least this season – there was nothing where you just look at it and go, man, that is that is an egregious either add or forgot. And I don't I don't feel that way about this. I think the more egregious was some of the first place votes in the media. Other than that, I felt like a lot of the polls kind of fit at least what I was thinking. I mean, yes, we've talked about there was a team, each man, each women, that kind of went different than what we thought. But for the most part, what we felt is sort of what was represented here. So I can't wait to do the deep dive. Yeah, the deep dive probably – Next week, maybe the week after, if we're pushing it right up to the opener, which is on uh, for ETSU. On the women's side, it's the ninth. That's the opener of the college basketball season as well across the country. And then for ETSU men's basketball, it's on the 12th against Appalachian State. And then two days later, Tennessee. So it'll be coming. Uh, you can't miss it. I mean, I'm going to put it in all caps, you know, yell it at you via social media, digitally yell at you that it is here and you must pay attention. Um, going to be tough this year because ETSU being so good at football, we might have like a two-hour show. I mean, we're going on like an hour and a half for this show. We have not had a show, I think, that's gone longer than, like, 135. But do, that show, who Okay, do, do we dare do a regular Monday show 
attitudes there Wednesday that's just a, a buck basketball bash. Right. Depending on how busy the week is, I think that'll dictate that. That's yeah, fair. I got to drive to and from Cleveland State. On the oh week. my gosh, here we go. Oh, I got to drive to Cleveland. Closing some ground to the current day. A really big sign of that, obviously, is the year itself, but also that we are getting to the point of being led by coaches that I have met. That's foreshadowing. We'll get to that in a second before we spoil the conclusion. The lone buzzer beater from the 2014-15 season. Some really tough years at the beginning of last decade. This was unfolding as one of them, but it didn't look like it would be that way early. ETSU won six of their first eight, and we're 9-4, and 4-1 four, four and one in the Southern Conference after a tight 71-70 to 70 victory over Mercer January 8th. They were in the hunt for a title run. And then I look at how the rest of the year unfolded, and it kind of reminds me of the arc of last season. Saw a coach not return to the program, hot start to league play, a bit of a surprise maybe to some around the league, but then a big regression just over three weeks after that win against Mercer in the 2014-15 year that perched ETSU firmly in the title race. They had lost four of their next seven entering a non-conference game right in the middle of league play, which the Bucks had three of that year. Unheard of now, but North Carolina Central, the opponent, in a low-scoring grind. The Bucks down 12 with just six minutes to play, but they fought all the way back, down one with the ball. To McClain, Bucks have a chance to take the lead with 25 seconds to go in the game. Bucks haven't led since the first half. They've only led once. We have a play called already. We're going to call time. Jalen Riley, much like the man we featured on Monday in this space, Kennard Gadsden-Gilliard, a community college transfer, but still, in just two years, a 1,000-point score for the Bucs, 34th on the all-time list, averaged over 20 points per game in the 2014-15 year. I'll let you give your impressions of the game before I get to the individual question I have about Jalen Riley, because, again, I think it's so strange looking back now, and it's not even that long ago, so it's really not that strange, but all those non-conference games in the middle of the year. I know we've gone away from that. It was a pretty common thing for a while. We've gone away from it now. And then you have Bruce Tranbarger on the call as well and this big 12-point comeback after being down 12, and they were down more earlier in the game. So, uh, there's a lot to unpack. First of all, that was a very good North Carolina Central team. Lavelle Moten brought in. The year before, they had won, I think, a couple games in NIT, one at Miami of Florida, and it <clears throat> was kind of rocking and rolling. I think they'd won seven, eight in a row coming in and had a healthy lead. One of my favorite guards of all time, Nimrod Hilliard, looked like Steve Urkel. Gla- I mean, big, thick glasses, shorts like above the belly button. Man could run an offense and get some assists. <laughs> I mean, it was unbelievable to watch him work. 13 assists in that game. That That's the first thing. In a game they scored 59, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, think about that. So 21 made buckets. He got that. And as the game went along, and for Coach uh, Moten and ETSU made the return trip the next year, which we'll worry about that with Steve Forbes later, but that was a, a game where Lavelle Moten was just like, I will play anybody. Just somebody please play me. We 
we are at North Carolina Central. It's tough to get games. Nobody wants to play us. We're really good. So it was a mid-year game. And, again, you mentioned it because we had the weird senior year Tennessee Tech on a random Monday in which the Tennessee Tech radio crew wrecked on the way here. And we had to call an audible and bring in Don Hellman for the voice of the Golden Eagles for a game and, and set up some extra gear and let him do a broadcast. Those poor but Golden Eagles. It was uh, the odd senior day on a snow day on Monday. But anyways, in this game, North Carolina Central defensively was really suffocating. And, again, Nimrod Hillier was outstanding. They Almost everyone on their team other than him was a D1 transfer from somewhere else. It was – you know, really before the head of a time. Now it's now you can look at a roster and you're like, oh, you got ten transfers. It's no big deal. Right. But it was not a thing really in 14-15. It was very odd. And, again, talking to Coach Moten after the game, who was very honest, he sat for about an hour after the game and just sat courtside. And, number one, he couldn't believe he lost the game, which I, I have to admit, I, I'm shocked he lost the game. And then, number two, just talking about his program and how hard it was. He can't get any freshmen to go there. Nobody wants to go to North Carolina Central. Then he has to get all the cast-offs. Then nobody will play him. It was very, I had a lot of respect, and still actually uh, occasionally um, we will tweet each other back and forth. So I like Coach Moten and everything that he's built still there at North Carolina Central. But that game was really about coming back, battling. Jalen Riley, I mean, there's not a whole lot you can say other than he was spectacular and had a great flair for the dramatic. He certainly never met a shot he wasn't willing to take from 30 feet or more and would be head-scratching at times, but he could flat-out fill it up. Teammates loved him. That was a big win because ETSU, you felt like in the mid-year there was about to turn a corner because they had one coming off a couple losses. They wrote, you know, so it's like, boom, lose Furman Wofford. You get that win. Then you get Furman Wofford Sanford on the comeback, and it went bad. We'll talk about that in a second. On Riley. Imagining he was here during the 2011-12 and 2012-13 seasons, along with the two that he was at ETSU. And keep in mind, and we've discussed this over the last couple of shows, not a lot of other top-flight scoring options on those 2011-12, 2012-13 teams. Ample opportunity to make your mark on the program in a really weird time where a lot of stuff off the court happened and there wasn't a lot of winning as well. Do you think that if he was four years here that he would have joined Tim Smith, Greg Dennis, Courtney Pegram as the fourth 2,000-point score in ETSU history? It depends. Were they recruiting with uh, the same uh, – if the next two years were with Steve Forbes, no. No, we're talking 2011-12, 2012-13, because uh, those were the years he was in college. He was community college before he came here. Yes, he would have been. He would have been 2,000-point score. He, he, I think he was up there for shots per game. He's in the top five, if I'm not mistaken. So he would have had enough shots. You know, maybe more because of volume. Uh, and, again, if you look at Tim Smith's shot totals compared to, to Greg Dennis, uh, that really makes you appreciate <clears throat> where Greg Dennis is on the list because he took about 250 shots less, and Timmy barely eclipsed him. Bigger picture, Bucks win that game January 31st, but go 3-4 and four in February, bounced by Western Carolina in the first round of the Southern Conference Tournament in their first year back in the league. And, to revisit the foreshadowing of earlier in the segment, the band that held the reins for over a decade at ETSU, Murray Bartow, exits as head coach, making way for first-year head coach for the Buccaneer men's basketball team that I am familiar with, that being Steve Forbes. Coach Bartow's longest stop at any one destination in his coaching career. We obviously know Coach Forbes, and he's recent in our mind. When you look back at the Bartow era, 
What comes to mind for you? First thoughts. Three NCAA tournament appearances, the most by any ETSU head coach. And the first year, you could say, well, he did it with the Chelsea's players, but he won a lot of games with the Chelsea's players where the Chelsea did not win a lot of games. You know, the Chelsea needed to win a three tournament games to get to 20 wins, and Murray Barto rolled out 28 wins. Then he did it again because a lot of people didn't give him credit for that, as you'd imagine, and had back-to-back in 9 and 10. And honestly, probably barring injuries, as we've already talked about on this show, probably could have had a three-peat. So that's the first thing uh, that comes to mind with Murray Barto's NCAA championships. Um, the second thing is, was the most superstitious man of all time. If we did a pregame <laughs> chat outside a men's room and we won that game, we had to go find a men's room and do a pregame chat until we lost. Did you ever do a uh, chat from inside the men's room? I did not. Okay, that's did not. That's the good news. Um, but we would change up that. He would eat the exact same thing. Every coach's show, he would sit down and, go, and ask the waitress, I want a plain chicken sandwich. Plain, 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 plain. I want chicken, cheese, bread, nothing else. Plain, 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 plain. And I, I was, and then I was like, I, I, I don't know what he thinks she doesn't understand. And then, of course, you know, there would be one time out of five years that it would come back with something else. And then I was like, oh, that's – the, Oh, the, the <laughs> famous pickle story. Oh, boy. We got uh, Chick-fil-A, and they always ask for two sandwiches without pickles on it. We just lost a game. He was already incredulous. Then he seized the sandwich with pickles. We drove back to a Chick-fil-A to get the two chicken sandwiches without the pickles. The man was anti-pickle. He had a lot of quirks. But he was uh, he was great to, uh, to deal with on my end. You know, a lot of times, you know, I think he, he was so much because of his dad ingrained um, coach speak. I think that wore on people over – you know, 12-year, whatever it was, 12-year reign. But I, I think that's just kind of what he was. He was, you know, the consummate pro's pro. Always gave credit to the other team. Always talked about how great they were. You know, you know, always gave them credit for why they lost. I mean, he was a pro's pro in that. I think the coach speak. And when you're – he said something to me a long time ago. He was like, you know, if you've been somewhere five or six years and you haven't left yet, the chances are you're probably going to get fired. And he's like, and if that's not the case, there'll be a new AD and at some point – well, then they'll get rid of you, but, you know, you just can't – in the coaching world, you just can't be there that long. And so it didn't really dawn on me, and he said that probably three years into the job. And then when he got uh, – then you know, Dick Sander came in, the new president, eventually made the change. And so I think that's how it went. But that those are the first couple just thoughts on Coach Barton. Those are wide-ranging thoughts. Oh, yeah. Shohei Otani. I don't know if you heard this yet. He's going to pitch. And hit. Mark it down. Plus 10 here. Hit a buck 20 max. There's not a soul that can stop the big three in New Jersey. That's five, baby. Literally, the last person on earth that should ever be considered the U.S. national team is Javel McGee. NIL stands for never in life, as in never in life will NIL be a real thing. No, you can't. You cannot show me one guy more dedicated to the university than Damari Monsanto. He will go down as one of the best to ever do it at ETSU. And if they fit Jay Sanders, will never scuff another 
I'm not listening. Are you talking to me? I'm, 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 I'm oh, paying attention to something else. Jay Sandos will always come another drive at John State Country Club. Hundreds. Here we go. I, I are you talking to me? Bowl predictions. All right. I'm the last one to get a bowl prediction right. That's right. That. So uh, you get a start. Two and 20. Pretty healthy record. Two and 20. What do you got? The two coaches on the hot seat in the Southern Conference that we've discussed anyway. I would imagine that everyone else sees it the same way. Josh Coffin and Brent Thompson. Wofford and the Citadel. They both win this week. Ooh. That's a good one. Wofford and the Citadel victorious and the Southern Conference championship run for many of these teams thins out just a bit more because one of those teams is playing Mercer School. 85 or more points in VMI and Sanford. I suppose that's fine. I mean, last year in overtime, they got to 75. Ah. So I'm going 10 more than what they did in overtime last year. I mean, Sanford and ETSU put up 103. Say 104 or more. <laughs> I'm going 104. Yeah. Uh, in the CAA, I really yeah, went deep I into like it. this. The you go Nova. What are we doing? Would you believe Richmond, once an FCS power, yep. winless in the CAA this season? That ends Saturday. They go on the road to New Hampshire, who nearly shocked James Madison a couple of weeks back, and get their first league win of the year. Let's go Spiders. My next bowl prediction is going to be James Franklin. Actually, knows where he's playing at. No, I'm just kidding. I wish I had that sound bite. Uh, Illinois, he just said it and didn't even think twice about it. Illinois, yep. we've got to focus on Illinois. got to focus on Illinois. You know, it's always tough to go to the big done. house. I don't know if you finished reading that. <laughs> oh, I didn't know. Yes, didn't. yes. <laughs> you finished reading the quote. He says, yes, it's always tough to go win at the big house. And not only did he have Illinois in the big house, but he's playing Ohio State in the horseshoe. Somewhere Ben Parrish is just losing his mind. I can tell you that. Uh I'm going to go because you have been on the Iowa State bandwagon beating the drum. They're going to go as a more than a touchdown favorite to West Virginia and walk out of there with the tail between their legs and a loss to the Mountaineers. Yeah, I looked over our season-long predictions. Let me just go ahead and interject with that uh, real quick. Um, Can you pull up uh, ETSU's football stats? Sure. Make sure where we're at on the completion percentage number. Oh, for the team. That's right. You said Bama and Clemson, no college football playoff, which – I need Bama to lose one more. I need them to lose an SEC title game. It may not end up being the case, but looking at how the season's gone, that's a pretty good prediction. Uh, three SoCon wins by more than one score. I think that you need all three now. Well, they have, oh, no, one. They the have Citadel. one. I need two one. more, right? Yeah, the two Citadel more. 48-21. So you need two more in the last I should have said the whole year, and I'm an idiot. And yeah. Didn't, okay. yeah, that's right. Uh, I don't know if I would have given you the full year, though. Um, and then 62% completion percentage for ETSU. I'm getting it right now. You're getting there. The three SoCon wins, I mean, it's still possible. Ooh, 63.8. Okay, he said 62. Close. So at Woo. this point, with how Tyler Idol is playing, it would be tough to imagine that getting below 62, but still possible. I said uh, four TDs in a game by one buck. That has not happened yet. It's two. Have we even had three? Not had three yet. So. We've had two. We've had a number of games, two. Yes. Uh, University of Tennessee, three wins or less. Ooh, that's uh, already not happened, right? Yeah, no. Yeah. That's, yeah. 
And then Iowa State, the one that you mentioned, college football playoff. Boy, that was over pretty early, wasn't it? Um, final one, the winless Detroit Lions finally get it done. And I'm going to stand up I almost went there. I, I almost it. went I'm there. It. But you know what? You, you'll take a while. Okay, go ahead. Well, I, I just want to give a round of applause when this does happen for Dan Campbell and his squad. No more game-winning kicks to break NFL records that beat you in the last second. No more former Lion quarterbacks getting come from behind victories against you. It is the Lions' time. Detroit wins, makes it zero winless teams in the NFL. That would mean everybody has a win. Who's been the hottest team last couple weeks in the NFL? Atlanta Falcons. They've beaten the two other teams in the AFC Championship game. Oh, Titans. All right, so they're going to go to Indianapolis. They're losing. <laughs> ten, ten or more, they will lose double-digit loss. To your boy, oh, Carson yes, Wentz, yes, that Carson you love, oh. it will be a 10-point or more beat down by the Colts and the Titans come back to being the Titans, whatever they are. They are the most confusing team in football. This is my favorite pick of the week. Yeah, it's probably mine, too. If they lose by 10 or more. 10 or more. you got to figure. I mean, I don't feel like a field goal big because it's yeah, at Indianapolis, it's, right? It's a one-point score. Right. Or one-point spread. Yeah, yeah. so... I think, I think, but I feel good about a 10, 13, 14 point win. It shows Boom. just how on to the Titans everyone is in Vegas, in everyday life, that they're only a sucker bet, baby. Sucker one bet. Point. They just beat the two best teams over the last couple of years in the AFC, and they're still missed one point. Well, and then they'll goal. play the best team in the AFC in a few weeks in the Patriots. And so it's okay. Yeah, okay. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Patriots going to get smacked by the Chargers this week. Let's go, Justin Herbert. All right. Another one of my guys. Next week, Santa's sidekick on the Buccaneers. Of course, that worked.